Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. Twenty-seven twenty. We begin Parshat Titzaveh, which is always read before, right before Purim. You shall further instruct the Israelites to bring you clear oil of beaten olives for lighting, for kindling lamps regularly. Aaron and his sons shall set them up in the tent of meeting outside the curtain, which is over the ark of the pact, to burn from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a due from the Israelites for all time throughout the ages. You shall bring forward your brother Aaron and his sons from among the Israelites to serve me as priests. Aaron, Nadav, Avihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, the sons of Aaron. Make sacral vestments for your brother Aaron for dignity and adornment. Next you shall instruct all who are skillful, whom I have endowed with the gift of skill, to make Aaron's vestments for consecrating him to serve me as priest. These are the vestments they are to make. A breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a fringe tunic, a headdress, and a sash. They shall make the those sacral vestments for your brother Aaron and his sons for priestly service to me. They therefore shall receive the gold, the blue, purple, and crimson yarns and the fine linen. All right. Why don't you go ahead and read a little bit more? They shall make the effort of gold, of blue, purple, and crimson yarns and of fine twisted linen worked into designs. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached. They shall be attached at its two ends, and the decorated band that is upon it shall be made like it, of one piece with it, of gold, of blue, purple, and crimson yarns, and of fine twisted linen. Then take two lazuli stones and engrave them, engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone, and the names of the remaining six on the other stone, in the order of their birth. On the two stones you shall make seal engravings, the work of a lapidary, of names of the sons of Israel. Having boarded them with frames of gold, attach the two stones to the shoulder pieces of the ephod, as stones for remembrance of the Israelite people, whose names Aaron shall carry upon his two shoulder pieces for remembrance before the Lord. Okay. <laughs> All right, so, we're, so we get the commandment here starting at chapter 28 uh, for the... Uh, making the crafting of sacral vestments for Aaron. And w- what, if you look at the Hebrew at the end of verse 2, what is this all about? What is all this clothing and all of this finery about? What's the purpose of it? Lechavod ultif aret. For honor and beauty. To separate him also. Of course, of course. So, but the purpose of the clothing is for chavod and tifaret, so for honor and for glory. Presumably, whose honor and whose glory? God. God's. Okay. Next, right? We're going to get the uh, all of the other vestments that they they are to wear. So there's a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a fringe tunic, a headdress, and a sash. In previous years, I have brought you pictures, right, of what that looks like. Hmm? What is an ephod? Oh, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're not sure um, exactly, but uh, it's something... Sometimes it was carried in the hand, according to some texts, uh, earlier texts, and sometimes it was girded on the body. Um, it is designed to ascertain the divine will. A staff, maybe? You no. The chest plate? Um, that's the, we, that's the breast piece. That's the choshen. Um, the ephod... Um, we're, we're not exactly sure. Um, I can tell you my notes. The biblical description of the priest's ephod includes four elements. The main body of the garment, two shoulder straps, and a richly decorated band. Left unclear is whether the ephod covered the lower and or upper parts of the body and whether the back and or the front. Josephus himself, a priest in the last days of the second temple, likens the ephod to the upper part of a woman's tunic. 
that had shoulder straps and sleeves and was fastened by brooches, a sort of waistcoat. Mm-hmm. So that's how Josephus And it would have been underneath the breastplate. Yes, it would have been underneath the choshen, underneath the breastplate. All right. All right. So we get, we get all of these right, um, vestments for Aaron and for the, his sons who will be serving as priests. The colors that they are made from, right? Well, they're gonna, it's going to have gold thread, um, so made from gold. Blue, purple, and crimson yarns and fine linen. Like linen was, right, a very still, like linen is a, an elegant, um, breathable fabric. Um, why, so blue, purple, and crimson. Why? Why blue, purple, and crimson? Expensive. Those are royal. Exactly. Rare. They are expensive rare. and rare. rare. Therefore, associated with royalty, with magic in the ancient world. Um, and so if you're going to have something to be something about honor and beauty, and it's about then the king of kings certainly deserves, right, the expensive colors of kings and queens of that time, right? So last year I brought you an article that Mickey had um, graciously uh, given. He gives me the Biblical Archaeology Review magazine, and there was this whole article on, on making purple uh, yes. Garments, yes. right, and how incredibly expensive they the were. The dye it, was expensive, was it? Hmm? Yeah. Dye. Yes, the dye was incredibly expensive. It was made from a certain kind of mollusk, um, and it took like tons of them to make, you know, a small, even a small garment dyed fully in that color. That's why often it was a stripe, because it was just far too expensive to have a whole garment. If there, and so there was a picture of an, an ancient mosaic uh, that had a king and a queen. Um, one was in like royal blue and one was in purple, a full garment. Wow. That would have been the price of a palace. I mean, it, it was wow. so. Um, so why, why are they depicted like that? Because they're telling you something about the wealth of that uh, community. Like if you're going to put them on a mosaic in those colors, a full garment in those colors, that meant that culture was extraordinarily wealthy. Blue is is just second. There's a book about how blue changed the history of the world. For in it's art, in, right? Yes, it, it's in every society mm-hmm. as one of the most valuable colors. And Again, the because it's the very tallit, The talit is supposed to have blue, blue. in it. Right. a a teal, uh, st- uh, strand of tchelet. We're not sure exactly what color tchelet is, but it's a... Uh, well, that's the same Hebrew word that's used here. Right, so we're, not, we're not positive blue. what... We, we don't know what color that was exactly. Um, I had a teacher who named her daughter tchelet. I was like... <laughs> is supposed to have one of the colors that the, pri- the priests would wear so there's a connection there right although we don't do that anymore we don't do that anymore because why the clams, because the clams are extinct well the mollusks <laughs> no Mm-mm. the oh rabbis outlawed it uh-huh so it's not because we didn't have access to uh-huh. it so there are different theories, um, but one is that it was so expensive, that dye was so expensive, that you're not supposed to make a mitzvah hard to um, achieve, and that it democratizes it to say you don't have to have the p'til t'chelet. I'm not so sure I buy it. Um, I read an article that convinced me that um, the rabbis were actually worried about people using the t'chelet Strand as kind of a talisman. Oh. It's connected to the priesthood. It's connected to magic. It's connected to all of that. And people were actually y- using it as kind of a magical element. And the rabbis were like, "Like we cannot have that happening." So they got rid it's of it. It's very common though today to have blue in a, in a talit. Also on not many, many, many right. different kind of talismans in the in as well the, as the Israeli flag. 
in the Middle East, right? All those warding things, like those eyes, you know, all those things are in blue because that is the color in that region of the world that you use to ward off evil, right? And um, and so so it it remains right a a a color of uh, of protection. And so the rabbis were like, Mm-mm, the Jews are mistaking what the tzitzit are supposed to be about, right? And they're, they're not seeing them as a reminder, right, to, to do the will of God and to, to observe mitzvot and to live your life as an observant Jew with the values and ethics that are involved with that. Instead, they're seeing it as kind of a magical um, element, and that made the rabbis very, very nervous. So they got rid of it. In spot, there was a lot of um, blue. Right. Yes. 100%. 100%. Yep. Look at it in tiles and vessels. Yep. Absolutely. All right. They shall make the ephod of gold, of blue, purple, and crimson yarns, and of fine twisted linen worked into designs. So we get, again, this this sense of the blue, the purple, the crimson, and the, the lavishness, right, of these garments. There are two stones. Um... Micro engraving on stones was an art that was highly developed in the ancient Near East. There was a whole industry of carving on jewels in Egypt. Um, so think about you know those little scarabs that you see. Um, that, so that that kind of carving in stone on little stones, but but intricate was a a highly developed uh, art and in, seals also. and the ancient world. All right, so so two lazuli stones and you're going to engrave on each of the stones six tribes of Israel. So six tribal names on one and six tribal names on the other. So that when Aharon goes into the holy of holies, when Aharon goes before God, what are these supposed to be? Zikaron, we're told. Right? So the end of verse 12, it's going to be Alshtek Tefav on both of his shoulders. Lezikaron, as a remembrance. A remembrance for whom? Whose Zikaron are we concerned with here? The people aren't there. So God's going to forget? No. No, the people are going to forget. God's going to forget the 12? No, the people are going to forget God. The people have nothing to do with the service that's happening. They're not there. So Aaron, if it's Zikaron and it's about Aaron, what's that about? Hmm? Lest he forget what? Slavery, it's <laughs> okay, All right, so, so Aaron goes into the Holy of Holies wearing the 12 tribes. So it's in memory? He goes in wearing, carrying the 12 tribes. So it's the history. He goes in with something that is a constant reminder that he is not there on his own behalf. He is not there because he won some kind of contest. He has been assigned the duty and the responsibility of carrying the relationship between Israel and God. And if something goes wrong with that relationship, who's it on? Him. In terms of his being a functionary, if Ali Garb gives me the wrong dose of medication, what happens? Really bad things, because she's their daughter, is my doctor. Um, her, she's the expert. She knows how to keep the system running and running optimally and exactly what has to be done at exactly what time, and she doesn't let me forget it, What exactly what has to be done at exactly what time in order to prevent a catastrophe, yeah? Or even just to prevent a niggling little something that then turns into, as it grows, because it's not attended to, something malignant, something fatal. 
That is what the priest is doing. So he's wearing his patient list (laughs) on his shoulders that he shouldn't forget. He's there doing everything so carefully, everything he has to do exactly right so that the relationship between God and the people is healthy because if it's not, it can be lethal. So does Allie have some of these or can we make some? She has a garment with all of our names on it. Mm -hmm. All right. So this is the Zikaron. Possibly it's a Zikaron for God. Because whenever God remembers the Jewish people, good things happen. Right? Whenever God remembers the Jewish people, good things happen. There are ways you do not want divine attention. Right? There are ways you do not want divine attention. But when words like this are used, it's a positive experience. It's a positive term. Zikaron. All right? All right. So, can you take some of those and hand them out? There's, they're packets, okay? So just take one packet. We'll see if we can make it through one Torah study without messing up the entire stack of handouts. <laughs> I'm going to begin reading. It's coming around to you. Just listen until you get it. Because I'm going to read to you from the book of Esther. At the end of this period, the king gave a banquet for seven days in the court of the king's palace garden for all of the people who lived in the fortress Shushan, high and low alike. There were hangings of white cotton and blue wool caught up by cords of fine linen and purple wool to silver rods and alabaster columns, mother of pearl and mosaics. Source number three. Royal wine was served in abundance as befits a king in golden beakers, beakers of varied design. And the rule for the drinking was no restrictions. For the king had given orders to every palace steward to comply with each man's wishes. All right. Um, All right. So what did we just hear? We're now in the palace of King Ahasuerus, who's giving a lavish banquet, right, um, for everybody. And so that high and low alike can now see the, the glory of, right, of Shushan. And there were hangings of white cotton and blue wool caught up by cords of fine linen and purple wool tied to silver rods. It's only when you read Titzaveh, moments before reading this, that you make the connection. I'm on text number three from the book of Esther. So I just read, right? I just read verses five and six. There's wine served in golden vessels. What were the vessels in the Mishkan made out of? Gold, right? All right. We cannot miss when we look at this text laid on top of Titzaveh, you cannot miss the parallels. What is used in Titzaveh in the book of Exodus for the glory of God? Blue, purple, wool, linen, twisted cords, silver, gold vessels. What is used for the glory of God in Exodus is used in the book of Esther to describe stuff that is for the glory of the king. king. You can't. We have pediatrified Purim to the point where we do not understand this story at all on an adult level, right? So I want y'all today to have a little bit of a taste of the way that the scroll of Esther is actually working. It is actually a parody. It is a, it is a critique, yeah? 
let me not step on my gown. That would not be good. I, I just know at some point today I'm going right over. I just, I can feel it. My, it's getting caught in my shoe. All right. So, tell me the names of the two heroes of our Purim story. Esther and Mordechai, exactly right. Who are the deities worshipped in Babylonia? Ishtar and Marduk are the chief, are big time deities in the Babylonian pantheon. It is no accident that our main character is Esther and Mordechai. It is not an accident. It is on, that's the point of the story. You Babylonians who worship Ishtar and Marduk, who are so powerful, we're going to name two Jews, right? Esther and Mordechai as being the important elements, the important figures in this story. All right. Esther is written, we believe, around the time that the Jews are allowed to return from Babylonia. Right? Do you remember 586? The temple's destroyed. First temple's destroyed. 586 BCE. We're not talking the second temple. The first temple is destroyed. 586 BCE. They are exiled to Babylonia. Right? 50 years later, Cyrus allows them to return. So Ezra and Nehemiah return, right? And that's when they start mandating a public reading of Torah three times a week. Which days? Thursday, Monday, Monday Thursday, Thursday, and Shabbat. 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 All right, Shabbat's obvious, right? Why Monday and Thursday? Market days. Why do it on market days? People, People are there. Right, so which meant they weren't reading it in the synagogue. They were reading Torah at the mall because that's where the people were. They were at the mall. So the people aren't going to come to Torah. Take the Torah to the people. Why do they mandate a public reading of Torah? Because the people couldn't read. It's not secret. So it's not secret. Of course people couldn't read. but But that... that doesn't, that doesn't mandate reading out loud. You could just say, well, they should come hear it. Doesn't it say in the Torah to read it out loud? It doesn't mandate three oh. times a week to read a public reading of Torah out loud. It's because the people didn't care. If the people won't come hear it and won't study it and won't learn it, take it to the mall and put it over the loudspeaker so they have no choice. They are forgetting the Torah. They are forgetting these texts. They are forgetting the law. They don't care. So put it in their faces. All right. That's, that's the kind of period we're talking about. Most Jews were so excited to come back from Babylonia. They magically and within two years rebuilt the entire city of Jerusalem and rebuilt the entire temple, right? Lynn says, no, not so much. They were happy. They were happy in Babylonia. They were in New York, the Golden and Medina. They were happy. They had a good life. Why should they go back to the rubble of Jerusalem and deal with that mess when they have a lovely three-bedroom condo overlooking, right, the gardens of Babylon, right? right? So that's the context in which Esther's being written. So Esther and Mordechai, reminiscent of Ishtar and Marduk living in um, Shushan, yeah? All right, so, so now, and what's the setting? We get the palace, but rather than crimson and fine wool and linen and gold vessels being used for sacred purposes, it's being used for drunken debauchery. Yeah? It's a mockery. 
of the Mishkan. Right? It's, it's the antithesis of the Mishkan. It's just excess. Right? By someone who has access to that. Right? Now do you understand the story of Vashti a little differently? If you're going to try to represent this king as being the antithesis of Aaron, right? Or the antithesis of the king of kings, right? Like, it goes like the, the furthest you can go is he has Vashti, his queen. He orders her to dance naked for the crowd of drunken men. This is all on purpose, right? And so, and, and, and our story, what does Vashti say? No. Don't think so. <laughs> right. So look at four. That's this text, right? After many days of drinking, Ahasuerus orders his wife Vashti to display her beauty before the guests. When she refuses... Ahasuerus deposes her as queen. Ahasuerus then orders all the beautiful young girls in his kingdom to be presented to him so he can select a new queen. Right. So this beauty contest takes place after each woman has prepared herself physically. This is in the scroll, by the way. This is in the scroll. We never talk about this part. All these women are taken. They are taken to the palace. It's not a contest that they sign up for and somebody wins. This is, they come, they find any non-married virgin that they think is going to cut the mustard and they take her to the palace. She is allowed to choose clothing and ornaments and she is prepared over months to appear before the king. Practicing the... uh hand hand wrist. Yeah, exactly. The winner of this questionable contest is the orphaned Esther, who has been raised by her cousin Mordechai. Though she becomes the new wife of the king, she does not reveal that she is Jewish. Her name, which is linked to the pagan goddess Ishtar, hardly a traditional Jewish heroine, is also an element of this parody. King Ahasuerus and the men of his court and later all the men of Shushan drink and feast with abandon. They do so amidst gold and silver, tchelet and argaman, making the palace sound suspiciously like the Mishkan, right? So the same materials earlier in the Jewish journey had been assembled to glorify God and now serve as the backdrop for drinking and debauchery. Although the king is not Jewish, this allusion to the sacred space of the Mishkan turns our attention to the question of the strength of the new queen's Jewish identity. Is she a Jew in exile who painfully feels the hardship of staying hidden? Or is she an assimilated Jew disconnected from her Jewish, Jewish heritage for whom remaining hidden does not take a large toll. This is a question asked of all Jews living in the diaspora. How connected are they to their homeland and their historical and religious heritage? We hear Esther speak up for the Jewish people only after she is reminded that she will not be saved if Haman's plot is carried out. We always assume, right, like she's so brave and I'm not saying she's not. I'm not saying that. I'm saying what's her relationship to her Jewish identity before that moment? We don't know. We don't know. But the, but the question lurks just under the text, right? So she's now the queen of, she's the queen of Shushan. She doesn't tell him she's a Jew. Why? We don't know. We, we're not, before Haman rises to power, we're not told there's any problem being Jewish in Shushan. So, so it's not clear she's not telling him because she's afraid. Of what? We're not told there's any problem, right? Until Haman picks on the Jews. We don't know, all right? But clearly, this is written to a community whose Jews think they can pass. This is written to all the Esthers in this room, right? That you can get away with not having to tell that you're a Jew, right? And if, 
And if that possibility exists, will you? Like, what is, what is your connection to right, the Jewish people, Jewish heritage, Jewish tradition, and passing that on? All right. So look at text five. Nazi Germany is a good hmm? here. Say it again. German Jews who thought they could pass. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. The Jews of Germany who thought they could, who did pass, right? Till until, till they didn't. Yeah. Till Haman came, right? So that's exactly what this is. This is not a new issue. This is not a new situation. The Jews in diaspora, it begins with Babylonia. But it ends, it ain't over yet. Right? We're still asking this question in America 2020. Will our kids identify as Jews? And what will that mean for them? People ask me when I converted, how did they know you had converted? I was so proud of it. I told everybody. <laughs> it was the opposite. I was so happy to be a Jew. I told anybody who listened. Right. So that we live in a time where you can do that. Um, so, so the Purim story says, okay, Mazel Tov, good for you, Judith. Good for you. Until, until Hitler rises to power. Yes. Until Haman rises to power and has an idea. Mm. Or many places in this country. So so don't think, just because you have it like that now, Jews of America, that... Beware. That's right, beware. And how many times have you heard, I know growing up, I I can't even count the times I've heard, it can happen here. It is happening. Okay, so you see... That's who's writing the Purim narrative. Very valid. It could happen here is how I grew up. Um, So that is the Jewish experience of diaspora. This is written for the Jews who are trying to pass. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Five is from the book of Esther. We're running out of time, so I want to go quickly. Text number five is about the danger of going before the king. Uh, Is it so hot in here, or am I just getting worked up? Okay. Um, So maybe, can we just punch it down like one? I'm just roasting. Um, Okay. So text number five is from the scroll of Esther and quotes the law that if you go before the king uninvited into the throne room, he has the option to put you to death, right? Capital punishment. You cannot appear before the king uninvited. And we have the instruction from Mordechai that that Esther should go before the king after the Haman makes the decree that all Jews shall be killed. Mordechai says, you have to go to the inner court. You have to go see the king. Remember, she's in a harem. She's in a harem. They would have been secluded, right? And you don't, you don't go into the men's part of the palace. You certainly don't go into the inner court where the king is with his advisors and all that stuff as a wife. Mm-mm. Right? And if you do, you risk being put to death for, en- for encroachment. Where have we heard that before? Where have we heard about encroachment before? (laughs) David gets the gold star. (laughs) If someone who's not Aaron goes into the Holy of Holies, and where do we see it? We see it with his two sons. They encroach and they are consumed in flame. All right. You, you have to read this with the lens, right, of Ezra and Nehemiah who are looking at Torah as, right, as the kind of school that wrote this, all right? So Esther, we get the rule that encroachment into the space of the king, if you're not supposed to be there, if you're not following instructions, you die or you could die, right? All right. So that should already get our attention. But Mordechai says she has to do it. 
because there's no there's no one else to do it. She has to be willing to do it and tells her, you know, if this goes if if Haman's plan succeeds, <laughs> your fate is is the same as the rest of us. And how do you know that it wasn't for this moment exactly that you were placed in the position of queen. All right. So look at six. What seemed like mere ornamentation turns out to be a protection against the overwhelming and potentially lethal power of God's inner sanctuary. We're talking about Aaron's vestments. These bells, remember he has bells on the bottom of his, of his robe, of his tunic? These bells are a way of sounding a warning and thereby gaining divine permission to enter and exit. The terror of this work becomes clear, but so too does the willingness of these priests of God to undertake the danger on behalf of the people. So, right, he's carrying on his shoulders the names of the people, the tribes. He's representing the people. He takes on the danger of representing the people. You cannot help but hear that underneath Esther coming before the king, risking her life on behalf of the people. That gives her a force much greater than herself. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's herself who has to do it. But she's more than that. Hmm? She's a representative. She's going to make herself a representative, right? All right. Um, so here we get the quote from Esther 4.11 that all the king's servants in the bold uh, and the people of the king's provinces know that if any person right enters then the inner court without having been summoned, you're put to death. Only if the king then removes the death penalty. What do you call that? When you're condemned but you get pardoned. pardoned. Only if the king extends, well, it's, there's another word. Commute Commute the sentence. Well, but you're still not punished, but okay. Maybe it's, it's pardoned isn't exactly the right word, but whatever. Okay. So um, takes away the death sentence, right? It, but that's totally on the whim of the king, right? Uh, and so just as a high priest sanctified, though he is, fears death when he walks into the divine king's home, so does Esther, immediately familiar though she is with King Ahasuerus, still fears the consequences of treading into his personal space without permission. She is scared, and she has good reason to be. This king is a whimsical tyrant whose moods and decisions are entirely unpredictable. I don't write this stuff, people. Yet Mordecai doubles down and encourages her to push past her fears and speak out on behalf of her people. So y'all who have such a lovely, lovely time in Babylonia, your ruler, right, if he's whimsical and tyrannical and is ten, tends towards like not thinking something through and Haman comes with a suggestion and you decide, the king decides that's a good idea, look out. Look out. For if you keep silent during this crisis, relief and deliverance will come to the Jews from another place and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows? Perhaps you have attained to royal position for just such a crisis. Mordecai, he who will one day wear the priestly colors himself, is here telling Esther, who is truly the high priestess of this tale, that she must enter into the inner court of her king despite her fears, just as the priests of old risked death as they entered into God's space once a year on behalf of the people. They did so unquestioningly, because this was their position. They had been chosen for just such a task. We are given status, Mordecai indicates to Esther, so that we can serve. We are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And there will come a time when every one of us will be called upon to stand before the king on behalf of the people. 
That perhaps is a lesson that the priests of Parsha Titzaveh have to lend to the Purim story. I'm going to go further and say it's the undergirding of the Purim story. Their constancy and commitment, their willingness to sacrifice themselves if necessary, their belief in the inheritance and the inherent sanctity of their task. Right? These are powerful ethics we might well import from our spiritual lives into our politics. Um, I also think of people like, you know, Hannah Senesh. Young women. We have to believe Esther, if she's a virgin, she's 15? Oh, really? Really. You don't get to be a virgin and be 30 (laughs) in the ancient world. So she's maybe 15. She, she She has to decide to risk her life. And, right? And she has no guarantee that this is going to save her people. She has no guarantee. I think of Hannah Senesh. I think of all those young women who have risked everything to use their position in someone's bed, someone's home, has used the power of an intimate relationship, risking everything to save their people. And we don't often talk about that, right? We talk a lot, we've talked throughout history about the glory you know, of folks who, who go to the battlefield or the generals who come up with the battle plan, right? Not so often about you know, the young women, not even just young, but you know, women who, who risk everything, using their, the only thing they have to save their people. And we... We don't really talk about that a lot when we talk about the book of Esther, right? We, we, we kind of miss, we kind of lose the, the real message of the, not just the message of the story, but the real, the real seriousness of this story and how many martyrs we have who didn't make it, right? Who risked everything and were caught, who risked everything and were rejected. This is National Woman's Day. I think this is another story wow. that that gives us the information that women have constantly not received <laughs> the information or the accolades that they should have received. Mm-hmm. Also, Annie, I was told that Ashverus is a Hebrew word or a, a word from the culture there. Ashverus is Cyrus the Great. We, so, we don't know. No. They're, actually, I, we don't know. What we know is it's a parody. So you can fill in who you want. It's not meant to be a historical tale, right? So it's not meant to indicate this happened, right? It, it's meant, they're all, they're all... Uh, examples, they're parodies. Yeah, it's symbolic. It's, it's bigger than example. It's, they're all, oh, what's the word? <laughs> the crown is like... Heavy is the head that wears the crown. Um, they're they're paradigmatic, right? They are, you know, they are, they are mm, prototypes, right? So you have the powerful king, you know, the the vizier who's evil and bent on anti-Semitic destruction. You have, you know, the brave young queen. You know, so they're all paradigmatic. Um, so, so I'm not so interested in who Ahasuerosh is because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who he is. He's every powerful ruler who, who is whimsical enough that he could be swayed like that to genocide. Because it's a good idea for today. It'll make me look good. It's my, he wants it. I like him today. I like that advisor today. So he can do what he wants. Right? So... That's who it's written. That's who Achashverosh is. Any ruler that y'all think you're safe under, when it could flip on you in a minute, and don't think it can't. That's what this is. Is there evidence this actually happened? None. Do you remember the end of the story? I mean, other than what's the end of the story? Does anybody remember the very end of the story? What? <laughs> we eat the hamantasha. Yeah. That is a Jewish woman's interpretation of the end of the story. We eat! <laughs> 
All right. Haman is killed. So what happened? The very end of the story is not that Haman is killed. You're getting to the end of the story. Haman and his ten sons are hanged instead of Mordecai. Then what happens? That's already happened. What's the very end? You don't even know. Because we don't talk about it. The Jews take revenge and slaughter the citizens of Shushan in the streets. It's like, yes! So they take revenge and Shushan runs with blood. Okay, so did this ever happen? No! This is a very dark fantasy of taking revenge on Hitler and the Nazis. Hitler and his advisors hang, and then the Jews rise up and slaughter the SS. And, and the rest of the German citizens. Which also didn't happen. That's, what, that's the end of our story. So this is very clearly, a, this is all a fiction. It is all a fantasy. And the end of the story is what secretly lurks. Doesn't it? I'll, I'll own it. It secretly lurks that you wish violence would happen to the people you feel are destroying your life. There's a secret desire that something should happen to them really bad. This is definitely not turning the other cheek, right? First of all, that's not a Jewish concept. Right? Someone smacks you in the head. Yes. What is the Jewish take on Well, I mean, it's a longer answer. Obviously, the the big answer is you're not allowed to. That's the that's the big answer. But We've studied enough Torah in here to know if someone, eye for an eye, someone hurts you, like you, you, you are allowed recompense for that damage. If someone kills a member of your family, you're allowed to be a rodaif. You're allowed to pursue the murderer and kill them. So, so it's there, right? That the, the, not only the, the desire, but the mandate in the case of Amalek you know, like wipe out Amalek, wipe out the Canaanites. Um, we don't historically that didn't happen either, but um, right. But it's it's definitely there. Well, war is not murder. No, 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 no. I'm talking. Mm-hmm. I'm well, not talking. Defensive war, yes, that's, that's, offensive war. You're going to tell me it's not murder? Uh, no. Okay. Mm-hmm. But, but to defend yourself. Okay, that's, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about someone kills a member of my family. I'm allowed. I'm not defending myself. I'm, al- I'm getting even. I'm, I'm allowed to go after the murderer and kill them. That is a, that, that's, I have to believe that law is written by people who want vengeance for what happens to a member of their family who was killed, you know, who didn't deserve it. So... I'm just saying it's there is legislation I think mm. that comes out of that desire for revenge or vengeance, including Amalek, wipe out Amalek because of what they did to you. Remember, Amalek attacks the rear, attacks the old people and the sick and the children. Amalek doesn't make war on Israel; it attacks from the rear and kills and slaughters the vulnerable and the innocent. That must go. That cannot go unpunished, right? And so I, mean, so I think there's definitely stuff we see where it's permitted, not even per- just permitted, but mandated. But for, in general, Judaism says we have to confront that desire and figure out ways to mitigate it and be bigger than that and to be better than that and That's to forbidden. check it 100%. But, but in, in the Torah, one of the 13... 13- these 13 attributes of God is slow to anger. But wait, but it doesn't say don't be angry. <laughs> this it, is it the God say, who loses it. How often? 
Mrs. I'm McCoy, just saying, I, I'm just get saying. Get out of the way. I'm the, wiping them out. I've had it. Exactly. Right? And Moses but says, don't get so angry so fast. <laughs> well, what will they say about you? But this, this desire for revenge mm-hmm. is the, the powerful story of Pesach in the ghetto where the um, uprising, the Warsaw ghetto uprising, was planned and executed. Mm-hmm. And that um, lasted longer than any uh, anti-Nazi action, that ghetto action, mm-hmm. was the longest. Right? So the the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, right, is planned and executed on Pesach, on the day of our liberation from tyranny. Absolutely. But we've really taken no action against Germany since the war ended. Well, maybe that's... All right. Small, yeah. So, all right. Maybe that's it. So I somehow digressed <laughs> big time. Really? Um, let's skip then. Um, I give this to you to take home so you all can read it as we move into Purim, right? Um, let's go to text number... What? I'm wondering if you meant 16. We were just at text 11. I said I'm going to skip. I'm going to skip to. I don't want to skip all the way to 16. Right? You're the rabbi. <laughs> the sequined rabbi. All right. 13. Uh, all right. Yeah. 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 13. On Purim, Jews dress up and wear masks that change faces etched in pain and suffering into joy and frivolity. On the surface, it seems that Purim involves an escape from reality, one moment in which we can mask the pain and difficulties we experience and don fanciful carnival masks and costumes. All is turned on its head on Purim, even gender roles, blah, blah, blah. Yet in a deeper way, this Jewish carnival experience allows us to challenge the inevitability of things as they are, inherited identities and fates. And in so doing, Purim provides us with the hope that the garments we put on that seem only to mask our present realities can reveal the deep-seated consciousness of our potential for change, our ability to bring happiness and fulfillment into our lives. So rather than, rather, we tend to see Purim as just a celebration. That's not what it is at its heart. Purim masquerade Playing with roles is all about being in the situation of the Esther Jews, inheriting a reality that we don't like. Or let's just imagine a political situation that we don't like and feel powerless to change. So if I can, for this day, become a queen, maybe I can become a voter that changes what happens in our democracy. Purim is about activating the real possibility that we don't have to accept the way it's been given to us. Yeah? Amen. It is a radical act to dress up, and I, we don't have to agree with this because we're, we're moderns, but, but for them, for the rabbis, and to drink to the point of things being a little muddled. Because where do the rabbis tend to live? Yes. Up here. Right? They live so far up here, their feet are under their chins. <laughs> right? So, I know it's a great image, isn't it? So, um, so Purim is all about creating some space between the feet and the head and allowing ourselves to relax, allowing ourselves to play with identity, play with reality, play by drinking, play with our perception of reality. Maybe, but you're, you're, you know, you, you drink to that place of joy, right? Not to the place of <laughs> ugliness. Um, and, and there's lots of ways to do that. It doesn't have to be alcohol. But, but that's the point of drinking on Purim, right? It is to muddle the way we normally see things. 
because we get so wedded to this is how it is and that's how it's always going to be that we can get stuck and not do what we need to do. And, and I'm not even just talking about changing something that's bad, right? I mean getting out of the way of our own, our own Haman, our own Paro. There's a tyrant living right here who says, Amy, you're always going to be this. You've always been it. Don't let them fool you. You're not really the because you've always been and you always will be fill in the blank. All of us have that in here. Purim is about, but what if? What if I lived as if I could wear a sequin gown and a crown and shine for a day? It helps me believe maybe I can. And the responses of everyone around me, oh, Rabbi, you look so beautiful. It's silly. But when we get loved and lifted up, even as we're being silly, that's an amazing thing. We have to take a risk to be silly, right? We have to take a real risk to show up to Torah study in costume. But when we get positive stuff in return, it's like, oh, right, the way I normally think doesn't have to be the only reality that exists. They might really love you anyway. (laughs) So for me, Purim, if we do it right, is about challenging the assumptions that keep us stuck and that keep us from taking on the responsibility for changing those aspects of ourselves, of our lives, of our futures, of our relationships, of the, you know, of the future of this, of this world that we live in and that we've been um, given. And so porn for me is a very serious obligation um, to take some risks. I'll never forget the, the time I learned the most about Purim. Well, one of, one of the ways I learned a lot about Purim was when I was living in Israel as a rabbinical student. Um, and it was my fourth year of rabbinical school. And I was with friends in Jerusalem, and we were planning a big celebration for Purim um, among our group of friends. And because we took, we, we had a couple of people who take this stuff very seriously. So we were like really going to do Purim together um, really seriously. And so, um, so the, the day before Purim is the day that all the kids uh, in Israel dress up and go to their school Purim whatever. And that's the day of a bus bombing that blew up little kids and their parents. Um, you saw people, you know, these people in hazmat suits with gloves on the tops of buildings picking up pieces in Purim costume. I mean, it was just... And we were devastated. We were just, the whole country was just devastated. And the question was, what do we do now? Do we do Purim tomorrow? How can we possibly dress up in costumes and drink and party and laugh until we had a whole joke-telling thing planned? We were going to read the Megillah. And it was just like, how can we possibly do that was everybody's first reaction. We can't. We just, it'll be a chilul, it'll be a desecration of their memories. By the time we cried and talked and cried and talked and watched the news and cried and talked, we decided we had to do Purim. Otherwise they win. win. (laughs) That if we are willing to abandon leaning in hard to joy, and of course it was mitigated, of course, but we decided, each of us, we, we had a, a tradition on Shabbat evening of passing out angel cards. Everyone drew an angel card and then had to explain why they got that angel. And there's just like one word on there with a picture of a little angel. They're fabulous. They were made by a bunch of nuns. Um, <laughs> as we sang Shalom Aleichem, welcoming the angels of peace and of rest, we would all pull an angel card. And then when we finished singing, we would each talk about why we think we got that, that angel that week. And so each of what we decided was we would each dress as one of those angels, um, Whichever one we felt we needed to bring forward, you know, to answer this tragedy. Um, I came with a light bulb with lots of different colors uh, holding it around my neck as delight, um, which was one of those cards. Um, And so we we realized that it was a mandate to celebrate Purim because Purim asks us to have the courage to believe that if we don't give in to despair, if we don't give in to hate, if we don't give in to revenge and vengeance, 
in darkness and accepting that as the reality. If we don't give into that, our own despair and anger, if we don't give into it, there is a possibility things can be different. Only if we don't go there and stay there. And Purim is a day that we are commanded by our tradition to dress as if to turn it all upside down and to for one day live in a different reality than we actually live in. Because that, when we do that together, feeds us and and provides for us access to an energy that is the only way it's going to change. Shabbat Shalom. Chag Sameach. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.